Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you grind wine, vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste, nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, they gallop along like cavalry, with a noise like that of chariots they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire-consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish, every face turns pale. They charge like warriors, they scale walls like soldiers, they all march in line, not swerving from their course. 
They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defences without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them the earth shakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, these are hard things to hear, the hard things that you had to speak to your people in days long ago, and they're hard for us to hear even today. But Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear. Uh, hearts to receive, uh, and lives that obey your word to us. Uh, so, Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, I don't know what kind of person you are, uh, but some people are the kind of people who cry all the time, aren't they? You know, you only have to say, uh, you know, hello, and they start, they're going to burst into tears. Um, uh, I don't know if it's the kind of person that you are. And then there are other people who seem to have tear ducts of steel, uh, uh, you know, you can <laughs> anything can happen to them, and and they're just impassive, immovable. Uh, you know, they 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 can't be affected. Uh, but for the most part, I think it is in Australian culture, uh, we we tend to think of tears maybe as an unwelcome part of life. You know, that is something that if you can, they're best avoided. Uh, and and you might get the impression from some people as they talk about the Bible, as they talk about Christianity, you might get the impression that that's true of the Christian faith as well, that tears and sorrow are best avoided, that the message of, of the Bible is, don't worry, be happy. But here in these chapters, we have a really surprising uh, message from God to his people uh, years ago, a message from God where he says through the prophet Joel that he wants the people to cry and weep and lament. He wants them to be sorry about things that are going on in their lives. And so I want to think this morning about why that was and how that uh, speaks to us uh, in our lives today. We don't know when exactly Joel prophesied. It was most likely in the 6th century BC. And he most likely prophesied to the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin who were in the south of Israel because the ten tribes in the north, the other tribes, had been sent into exile some years before because of their sin. 
We don't know when he spoke, but whenever he spoke, we do know that he spoke on behalf of God and he spoke on behalf of God to explain to the people their present misery. That is, they'd experienced some great destruction through a locust plague that had come on them. Look at verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days and the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What are they telling? What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten too. There's been uh, kind of, uh, uh, what do you call it? I can't think of the word. Plague upon plague of locusts. Uh, and, and, and they have devoured everything. Uh, and, and in verse 6, they're described almost as an army. That's how kind of frightening they are. It's, it's, the, the picture is of one army coming up after another army after another army, kind of just absolutely decimating the land. And the rest of that chapter then uh, describes the ramifications of that plague. So, so here are some of the things. The, the locusts have destroyed the vines, the fig trees. They've stripped the bark off the trees. They've destroyed the fields. They've destroyed the grain crops. There's no wine. There's no oil. There's no wheat. There's no barley. There's no fruit. There's nothing to eat. There's nothing at all for the people to, to, to live on. There's no seeds to sow. The storehouses are empty. And the cattle are starving because they've got nothing to eat either. And then in verse 19 and 20, we find out that on top of that, there's been fire and drought. So what hadn't been devoured by the locusts uh, had, been, uh, had been kind of burned. And then the streams as well had, had dried up. It's this picture of just complete devastation. It's hard, I think, for us to imagine what that would be like um, for us. We're so far removed from the land, in, a, in an industrialised culture, we're so far removed from having to live off the produce of the land kind of immediately, it's so far away from us, that we can't sort of relate to it. But I think it would be, for us, it would sort of be like walking into Woolies next door one day and just the shelves being completely empty. And then thinking to yourself, wow, what's, what's going on? I'll, well, I'll try Coles, you know, head over to, King, to, to Meadow Mews. Nothing. And then driving into town and, and hitting up all the supermarkets and just finding the, the shelves bare. It's a terrifying thought, actually, isn't it, when you think about how little you have in your pantry at home. You know, you're going to, visit, what, you're going to have like maybe one or two days of food or something to feed a family? Not even. Some people clearly have their nuclear bunkers, but... It's a terrifying thought, isn't it? That's a, and that's what these people were experiencing. The storehouses were empty. They had nothing left. And if that wasn't bad enough, God says through Joel that actually it's going to get even worse. So he warns in chapter 2 of a future misery. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. It's another disaster coming on the people. It's another locust plague. 
Look at 2 verse 3. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. There's nothing left. But as we get into chapter 2, something else becomes increasingly clear, and that is, this is not just some random disaster. Notice that this impending destruction is described as the day of the Lord. That is, this is God's work. The day of the Lord is the day on which the Lord is coming against his own people in judgment. The locusts are God's army. They're God's army coming against God's own people in judgment. It becomes clear as uh, this prophecy of Joel progresses that the cause of devastation is not random chance, but God himself. And God is coming against his people, not for no reason at all, but because of their sin. He's coming in judgment because of what they have done against him. How they've responded to him, how they've related to him, how they've abandoned him. Now, not every misery that we experience in our lives is a direct judgment of God, just as uh, in the Bible that wasn't always true. Uh, Not every misery was always the direct judgment of God against a specific sin. So in the Old Testament book of Job, Job's life falls to pieces and his friends say, well, it must be because you've sinned against God. And the whole point of the book of Job is to say, no, actually, that's wrong. The equation is not always that easy. Sometimes we suffer misery and we don't know the reason." So too in in the Gospels, one time uh, Jesus' disciples come to him and say uh, uh, about a crippled man, well, who sinned? Why is he crippled? Who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus says to them, it's not always that simple. Wasn't him or his parents? But it was so that the glory of God might be revealed in me. The misery that we experience is not always a result of the direct judgment of God against a specific sin, not always, but sometimes it it can be. One of my lecturers used to say, sometimes God is giving us a smack and he wants us to sit up and take notice of what we're doing in our lives, how we're living. Sometimes God does bring suffering, suffering and misery on our lives because of our sin, either our own sin, or actually sometimes the sin of others as well. So that can be true at an individual level, so we can suffer the direct consequences of our sin. You might steal something and you might be caught and go to jail because of that. But sometimes the consequences are indirect, so we might sin in some way and then God takes something else quite different away from us. But what's true at an individual level can also be true at a church level. So a church might be caught in sin. Not every member of the church might be caught in that sin, but a significant number of the members might be. And God might bring misery and distress on that church because of their failure to deal with the sin in the church. So we find that in the book of Revelation. We we have Jesus' messages to some of the churches of that day. Jesus says to one church, repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Jesus is coming against that church in judgment because of their failure to repent for the sin which is in their midst. 
And what's true at an individual level and a church level can also be true, I think, at a national level. All through the Old Testament, we see God uh, dealing not only with individuals, but with whole nations. Whole nations can share together in sin and in the consequences of sin. And whole nations sometimes are judged because of their sin. Uh, Egypt was judged because of their treatment of the Israelites, so too the Canaanites were judged because after 400 years they still refused to acknowledge God. And even God's people were judged as a nation. The ten uh, northern tribes were sent into exile because of their sin, and in Joel's day, the nation of Judah was suffering because of their sin. The book of Joel shows us that sometimes God brings disaster on us because of our sin. And he does that to wake us up. And so it's important for us to ask, when things go wrong in our lives, in our life as a church, in our nation, in our world, it's important for us to ask the question, is this God's response to our sin? It might not be. But it could be. Is this a wake-up call from God? Is there something that we need to address? Is there something that I need to address? Is there something that we need to address together? That's so important, you see, because actually some of these words used here in Joel are used in the New Testament, not to describe a day of disaster in this, in this life, in this world, but actually to describe the day of God's coming judgment. The day of the Lord is used by the Apostle Peter in one of his letters where he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear like a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. That is a day of greater judgment is coming. The day on which the Lord Jesus Christ will return to judge the entire world, to judge the living and the dead. And God wants you and I to be ready for that day. He's giving us a chance to turn from our sin and to turn back to him before it's too late. That's a great mercy of God, isn't it, actually? To give us that opportunity to turn back before it's too late. Whatever the consequences of our sin, are, uh, in, whatever the consequences of our sin in this life, there are ultimate consequences for our sin as well. And judgment is coming on each one of us for our sin against God, unless somehow we can find mercy in God. We deserve judgment, unless we can find mercy. And that's exactly what Joel goes on to speak about. He goes on to speak about the opportunity for mercy that there is with God. So Joel warns the people about what God has done and is going to do. But he also gives instructions then on how they're to respond. And these two chapters are filled with commands. So uh, just running through some of the verses, chapter 2, verse 1, here are some of the commands. Hear and listen. Chapter 1, verse 3, tell, tell it to your children. Chapter 1, verse 5, wake up, wail, wail. 1, verse 8, mourn. Uh, one eleven, despair, wail, grieve. One thirteen, put on sackcloth, mourn and wail. One fourteen, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, assembly, summon the elders, cry out to the Lord. Chapter two, verse one, blow the trumpet, sound the alarm, tremble, because the day of the Lord is coming. Two fifteen, blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. The dominant idea, I think, running through all those commands through both these chapters is the idea of lament, wail, mourn, put on sackcloth, declare a fast. People would put on sackcloth uh, 
kind of as a visual expression of their grief, of their misery. Uh, And a fast was often the same kind of thing. It was a a kind of self-imposed suffering, that is, I'm already suffering, I'm going to suffer even more to kind of express my sorrow over what's happened. But God says in chapter 2, verse 13, that the kind of grief that he's looking for is not just superficial external grief, but genuine heartfelt remorse. Rend your heart, he says, and not your garments. People would also tear their clothes, you know, sort of to express their grief. And God's saying, don't just do that, or, you know, don't even need to do that at all, but don't rend your hearts, not just your clothes. God is looking not just for public displays of grief, he wants us to be genuinely distressed about the sin in our life. That's not because he's sadistic. I want you to feel miserable. Uh, but it's because by sinning against him, we've, we've hurt him. We've, we've offended him. We've angered him. And he wants us to kind of understand that and to recognize that. That's not unreasonable. That's entirely reasonable. Uh, sometimes we, we treat sin quite lightly, I think. We kind of treat it with a, with a she'll be right mate kind of attitude. You know, it'll be okay. It's just water off a duck's back. But there's a place. When we hurt someone, when we offend God, there's a place for grief. If you hurt your friend badly, if you do something really awful to them, for whatever reason... Uh, and then instead of acknowledging the hurt, you just kind of get on with life and pretend nothing ever happened. That's, that's not okay, generally. That's, that just compounds the hurt, doesn't it? Oh, you know, you're just getting worked up about nothing. No, it's important, isn't it, when you deeply offend someone to show them that you've hurt them. And that it grieves you that they're, they're grieved. It hurts you that they're hurting. It's not unreasonable of God to expect that of us when we have angered and offended him. It's perfectly reasonable. It's right, it's appropriate. It's not that our tears somehow magically acquit us. The only thing that can reconcile us to God is Jesus' death on the cross. Our tears don't reconcile us to God or make amends with God. What they do is they show the genuineness of our repentance, our recognition that we've hurt God and that we're hurting because of that. But notice too that in this chapter there's a place not only for our own grief as individuals, but grief together. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Everyone, everyone come together, young or old, whether they've got more important places that they'd rather be, gather everyone together. Sometimes, you see, sin is shared. Sin is a shared sin and has shared consequences. So churches often have shared sins. A shared sin for a church might be prayerlessness or distrusting God. A shared sin might be lovelessness or narrow-mindedness. A shared sin might be doctrinal error. 
Uh, Shared sin might be affirming behaviours that are against God's plan and pattern for the world. A shared sin might be hypocrisy. A shared sin might be putting the interests of our own lives uh, and interests above God. Those things are often individual sins as well, that is, we, we see them in our own lives. But when they're shared sins, what happens is that we all tacitly approve and affirm the sins of each other. So if we all put our own lives and our own comfort above God, then when we look around and we see everyone else doing that as well, we'll think to ourselves, well, that's okay, isn't it? We feel affirmed in continuing to live in that way because that's what everyone else is doing. We won't feel guilty about it. We'll be confirmed and affirmed in it. I sometimes think about what our shared sins in this church are. Uh, I think that's a hard question to ask and I've been thinking about that. I've actually even been talking to people about that uh, over the years, in fact. And as I thought about uh, our church this year, I think the two sins that we're most in danger of sharing in together are grumbling and apathy or laziness. I, I I might be wrong. I don't know whether it's a right perception, but I've had a nagging feeling all this year that there's a dis- undercurrent of discontent. Maybe not a big one, but just a kind of a growing grumbling about stuff. Mostly small stuff. Actually, kind of mostly insignificant stuff. But grumbling about stuff, and even small stuff, can still be corrosive and destructive. Um, I think I've even found myself getting caught up in grumbling about grumbling. If that's possible. Uh, And sometimes we do it under the guise of wanting things to improve. You know, we grumble and say, but of course I'm really trying to make things better. Although we never lift a finger to do it, we just grumble. And we may not even grumble ourselves, actually. But we share in that when people complain to us and we let them complain. Instead of saying, you're grumbling, stop grumbling. The other shared thing I think that maybe affects us is apathy or or laziness. One of the most disturbing statistics about this church uh, is that about 250 people belong to this morning congregation, but our regular attendance is actually only about 150. In other words, every Sunday there's 100 people who are not turning up to church. The statistics aren't quite as bad at 4pm, And I understand that there are times when people are away, that's fine, but 100 people every week to be away is a lot, actually. That's a shared sin, in that some of us don't turn up and the rest of us allow that to slide by without challenging and encouraging people to keep coming. I was flying to Melbourne recently and I thought, and this is a problem that plagues my mind constantly. And I think, how do we fix this? Uh... And we've been chipping away as an eldership on this problem for a, a long time, actually. Um, and I was fine to Melbourne, and I thought, how do I fix this? 
And I thought, no, that's the wrong, that's the wrong question, actually, isn't it? I, said, this is, I thought to myself, this is not my problem. This is our problem. This is our problem that we need to own. And unless we own it, we're never going to fix it. You see, how do you build a community of believers who are strong in Jesus Christ, you love him, if people aren't there? You can't do it. How do you grow together when you're never around each other? And what does it say about our desire to know God and to follow Jesus and to grow in that if we can't turn up to one of the few things that we commit to doing? It's not as though the list of enormous demands that we're placing on people, we're just, just, just for people to turn up every week would just be fantastic, just be lovely. Most weeks, you know, 45 out of 52, whatever. What does it say about our priorities? You see, churches and communities can share in sins, but God's point through the prophet Joel is not simply that we share in sins together, but if there are shared sins, then there's also a place for shared grief. His point is that if there are shared sins, then the place that we start is by sharing together and acknowledging that there's a problem. There's a place for gathering together and acknowledging our shared sin, for grieving over it and seeking God's mercy and compassion. To be honest, I find that idea deeply uncomfortable because I'm not used to it. And because I think it's confronting. But the alternative of not addressing our shared sins is that it will weaken the church. And ultimately it might bring bring God's judgment against us. So let me encourage you, uh, if you think I'm right about grumbling and apathy, let me encourage you to confess and pray for that this week in your own prayers uh, and in your prayers with your family uh, and in your prayers with your growth group and your Sunday school class or in your youth group. Let me encourage you to reflect on that, what our shared sins are. I, I might be wrong, I'm happy to be wrong. But what are our shared sins? Are there things that we need to gather together and say, you know what, there's things in our life as individuals, as a church, that we need to address and we need to address together. So Joel warns that that disaster has come on the people, on God's people in response to their sin. He calls them to wail and mourn. But that's not all he does. He calls them to return to God. To only weep and mourn is inadequate, actually. Weeping and mourning is just the beginning of a journey. It hasn't reached its goal unless it leads us to returning to God himself. So chapter 2, verse 12, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. So even though God has already brought judgment on his people, and even though he has already forecast that more judgment is coming, nevertheless, God calls the people to return to him. He calls them to return to him with all their heart. Why is that? Because God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. 
How do we respond to the impending calamity, to the threat of God's judgment on our sin? We respond astonishingly by returning to the very God who's threatening devastation and destruction. It's deeply counterintuitive. When danger approaches, our instinct is to run away from danger. If a, danger, if a, bear's, if a bear's chasing you, you run away from the bear, don't you? You don't run towards it. But here is God threatening to come against his people in judgment. And God says that the way that we escape that coming judgment is not to keep running away, but to turn and to run back to him. Even in judgment, the safest place is in the hands of God. You see, we've spent our lives running away from God, avoiding God, trying to get rid of God. That's why God is coming against humanity, human beings. It's because we've spent our lives running away. The solution is not to keep running, but to turn around and to come to him through Jesus Christ. Notice too that repentance is a relational idea here. It's not just a change of direction. It's a return to a person. It's a return to the God who made us and loves us, who calls us to come to him. It's a return to a person to say, sorry, God, I'm so sorry for what I've done. I'm so sorry for all the things that I've mucked up. I'm so sorry for running away from you, for offending you, for hurting you. Can you ever forgive me? And God's answer is yes. Joel says to the people here, who knows whether God will relent? Who knows whether he'll relent of sending the locusts he's threatened to send? Joel's point is our repentance can't twist God's arm or force his hand. We're completely dependent on God's mercy. It's his choice whether he will forgive us or not. It's important for us to grasp how helpless we are. We, we depend on God saying yes when we ask for mercy. Who knows whether God will relent? But Joel wants us to know that God is a gracious God and a compassionate God, a God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Who knows? We can't twist God's arm. But we do know, don't we? Because he's a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God's character assures us of what his answer will be. Not because we deserve it, not because our repentance wins his favour, but because he's just astonishingly merciful and compassionate. And if that wasn't enough, the cross assures us of God's mercy because everything that needed to be done for our reconciliation with God everything that needed to be done for God to relent everything that needed to be done for God to welcome us back with open arms has been done there he is on the cross in the same moment coming in judgment against his own son in our place and at the same moment standing with open arms and saying come to me
if you return to the Lord, you can know that he will not reject you. The Apostle John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He won't despise you. Not because you deserve it, but because he's gracious. Not because you've earned his forgiveness, but because Christ has earned it by hanging on a cross. God is a dangerous God, there's no question about that. He's dangerous to us because of our rejection of him. And if we persist in rebelling against God, we'll remain in eternal danger. But if we turn to God, we can know that he will relent because he's gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Let's pray to that God now. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so much more magnificent than we ever dared hope. That you are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Lord, we acknowledge that most of us, many of us, have not really suffered greatly in our lives. But we have all suffered in one way or another. And every suffering, whether it's a response to a specific sin or not, every suffering, every piece of misery is a reminder of a world stained by sin. And in a coming day of reckoning, when everyone, each of us, will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ to give an account of our lives. And Lord, we know that each of us requires mercy for that day. And so we thank you that you have provided what we need in Jesus Christ. His death which brought forgiveness for the sins of all those who entrust themselves to him. And Lord, we want to confess that there's sin in our life as individuals. You know those. And Lord, we grieve and mourn over those. And Lord, there's undoubtedly sin in our life together as a church. And you know those better than we do. And Lord, if that's apathy, we're sorry. And we ask that you'd forgive us. And Lord, if that's grumbling, gossiping, then we're sorry for that too. And we ask that you'd forgive us. And thank you that we know that you will. But Lord, help us also to change so that sin won't dominate our lives but that each and every day we'll be transformed more and more into the image of your glorious and majestic Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we confidently pray. Amen.